1: A special exhibition at the Bodleian Library in Oxford is exploring the importance of gift-giving through books and across time. Books, of course, make good gifts, and they're also a powerful means by which people tell each other about the importance of giving and its risks. In early modern Britain, social structures revolved around give and take, whether those gifts were books, food, hospitality or advice. This was a culture that intensely scrutinised and agonised over giving, about getting it right, whether that was giving, receiving, or reciprocating, especially when it came to the annual New Year gift giving of the Tudor court. What do you give to the person who has everything? Elizabeth I's courtiers worried about this problem too. My guests today are the exhibition's curator, Dr Nicholas Perkins, Associate Professor and Tutor of English at St Hugh's College, Oxford, whose publications include The Gift of Narrative in Medieval England, and he is joined by the author of the exhibition's book chapter on the early modern period, and a returning guest to this podcast, Dr Felicity Heal. Dr. Heal is Emeritus Fellow of Jesus College, Oxford, and was a lecturer in history at the University of Oxford. She's published extensively on early modern British history, including a book on the power of gifts, gift exchange in early modern England. We're recording at the Bodleian itself. Let's go in. Nicholas, you curated this exhibition, what were you seeking to convey? What's the heart of this exhibition?
2: There are three linked ideas really that we're trying to get across in the exhibition. One is simply to really look and enjoy and examine actual books that were gifts and to think about what's special about them and how they relate to other ideas about giving in the periods that they were written. The other is to showcase stories, narratives about generosity, exchange, sometimes particularly the difficult parts of giving, gifts that go disastrously wrong. For example, say the Trojan horse. And I think moving on from that and something that kind of reaches out from the exhibition into say some of the outreach work that we're doing alongside it is the idea of telling a story, being itself a kind of gift to another person, whether it's a book whether it's a conversation, a bit of gossip, whether it's something else that you're just sharing, that sort of give and take is really important to all of us.
1: And I suppose there's a sense that gifts are at the heart of social interactions throughout the centuries, but also you're looking at some specific cultures and periods where gifts have a particular significance or there is a particular ethics around gifting. And one of those, of course, is the early modern period. Felicity we've talked before about gift giving at New Year and how vital that was some of the examples we see downstairs are of gifts that are given at New Year but what else do we see here in terms of the meaning of gifts and how gifts can be used and what does it tell us about gift giving in this
3: period As you say, we have this focus because the evidence takes us very often towards New Year gifts, and I think we should see those at least in the context of the court and the growing strength of the monarchy in England in this period as a form of exchange which is about power and power relations, and also which is about competition, the patronage and everything that goes with it. Now, why this period, as I say, is partly because we do see the monarchy, particularly under Henry VIII and subsequently under Elizabeth, strengthening its control over many of the elements within the kingdom. So there's a way of displaying your seeking of power and influence through the crown. Secondly, I suppose, as far as gifts and books are concerned, we're in a transitional moment because we're moving almost inexorably from a manuscript culture to a culture which is largely of print. Both of those are going to be significant in their period, but they give yet another dimension to the process of competing with those who you might be seeking influence from because we have some admirable examples of both those media There's
1: a sense that gift-giving does operate very much on that level of negotiating patronage and demonstrating power or asking for power. Is that a fair summary or do we see gift-giving as genuine friendship
3: in this period as well? I think we can see both. It's an easy answer, isn't it, to say that it's neither one thing nor the other. It's perhaps, as a historian, easiest to emphasize the power and competitive element here because we can see that in a very visible way in the historical record. But there are, I think, many ways in which we should still see this as a culture in which friendship is expressed through the process of giving. We have in the exhibition the painting of Erasmus, and Erasmus for all his desire to compete for power and influence and patronage and money, we still have the construction also of networks of friendship which are reinforced and articulated through the gift. That may be rather simple and not complex, but it can also be quite elaborate gifts. And these are now expressed in what, for shorthand, we could perhaps call a humanist mode. And books are obviously going to play a part in that sort of exchange of friendship.
1: So there's very much a sense that they're picking up on classical ideas about the importance of friendship, Cicero writing about friendship or Seneca writing about the relationship between the gift-giver and the recipient. These are ideas that are absolutely crucial to this
3: mode of thinking. Yes, these are now becoming a much more important element in the story of how we look at, I think, gifts overall. If I could step back briefly into the late medieval period, obviously issues like kinship and loyalty expressed through giving are important elements in the story. Those remain in the 16th century, but we are adding to that this very distinctive sense of a society which at its top is thinking of itself as more committed to humanist values, looking to the classical past, and using gifts as one of the many elements in the expression of that adherence to humanism.
2: Yeah I think that's absolutely right Felicity and then it makes me think also of the really nice discussion that you have in the chapter that you've written for our exhibition book where you talk about perhaps a much less public but nevertheless always ongoing kinds of gift relationships say amongst families so it's not only that humanist or royal or very public display that's going on but for example in the exhibition we've got a letter that's part of the Herrick correspondence where the parents are sending they're arranging to send food to their children who live in London and the parents are still based in Leicester aren't they so it's a very much more straightforward family kind of relationship and I think Felicity you say in the book that Erasmus for example he's a bit sniffy about the sort of more common people sending their small tokens back and forth but really in early modern society that's going on all the time those little gifts or tokens, particularly of food, or the items
3: of clothing and so on, and that sort of stitches communities together. Yes, and I think that's very important. Perhaps what we're seeing in the early modern period, though, is the ability to find the evidence, as historians, of that sort of process of exchange going on, which is intended to cement relationships at, at least at the middling and lesser forms of society. I don't think it's necessarily a new pattern of behaviour. Now, because of the nature of the evidence, we're able to say that it is something that is going on, as far as we can tell, routinely at all the time. Perhaps mobility may make a difference a little bit to this, that the Herrick letters which you're mentioning are there partly because members of the family are in London members of the family are in Leicester and they're exchanging ideas and goods and food but I don't think that's really fundamentally different from what we've gone in on in the medieval period which essentially is again that sense that gives one of the forms of cement that hold the society together.
2: Yeah I think that's absolutely right and from my perspective as someone who mostly teaches and researches literature of the period yes the in medieval texts it might not be the same quality of evidence as, say, a set of letters, but definitely in fictional writing, that idea of the give and take, say, between lovers exchanging a ring or an item of clothing or the expectation that someone, say, a lord and a servant or someone higher and lower would exchange things. We know, for example, that what we might now call payments, as it were, are often couched as gifts. For example in Geoffrey Chaucer's life we know that when he was starting out, as it were, he was given clothing as I suppose as a form of payment. And yeah, something else that I think we do have, stretching it back a little bit early, would be another set of letters, something like the paston letters, Mm -hmm. where again we can see there amongst an extended family exchanges, not only of the letters themselves, Mm -hmm. but they also discuss other kinds of exchange, sending of goods, advice, all of those kinds of things. So, in these periods, there isn't a really clear distinction, I think, between a gift which is an actual object and a gift which might be a piece of advice or a poem or a heartfelt wish or something like that. And those things do mingle in people's imagination.
1: Um, I love the idea that you can give a piece of advice, that you can give a poem. And I also like the idea that a payment to somebody might be a gift. But I suppose the nature of the evidence draws us towards thinking about gifts at the high end of society by definition books are going to be those exchanged between relatively elite people who can read and some of the objects in the exhibition are particularly fine and expensive examples but the herrick letters is just one insight into a broader culture around gifts what other sorts of gifts do we have here
2: Another kind of gift, and I'm really conscious of that, as the curator of the exhibition, not only wanting to have very lavish things on display, something else that we do have, which I suppose is a more modest idea about giving, comes from a little book of poses, little quotations or mottos or sayings that one might give, say, to your lover. So we've got a book published in, I think, the 1620s, which gives examples of those. And says, oh, here are some ideas of what you might inscribe on a ring, say, to give to someone you love, or something you might put on a handkerchief. And they're tiny little phrases, they're rhymes. It says something like, if you be true, I will too. There's those (laughs) sorts of things that we might imagine now from a greetings card or something. But those are also really important aspects of people partly drawing on a menu of options, but also personalising them and at lower levels of society from those royal gifts, saying something special to someone they loved or to someone they had a kind of obligation to.
3: Could I just add a plea there for emphasising the idea of food gifts? They are all over the record in different forms as part of hospitality, as part of the process of entertaining in various forms, and in the great houses, of course, large, accumulated information about how gifts were taken and given. But we also have that at a very much more modest level. I think it's easy to forget that in early modern society, food is one of the more important ways in which you can express your loyalty, your adherence, your interest. And even in the 18th century, I think we can still see that exchange of food gifts alongside maybe rings and other things as being a really significant part for the ordinary population of the process of gift-giving.
1: Thinking of hospitality, Felicity, I was really struck in your chapter for the exhibition book about how one could understand the royal progress as a type of giving, both by the people to the Queen and the Queen to the people. Is that a fair summary?
3: Yes, I think it is. It's quite interesting that in some sense, in a residual way, we still have a bit of that left in modern culture, the notion of the crown visiting is still seen as a process of exchange, of course, between the host and the guest, but also a form, I think, of gifting a certain sort of residual power that we see as inhering in monarchy. But obviously when we go back to Elizabeth I, she very clearly saw her presence as being a gift those who received her. They, in their turn, performed the gifts much more elaborately by giving both hospitality itself and also, ultimately, gifts of a physical kind, jewellery. And, as I say, they weren't always things that it was easy to assimilate, but I think this is a very characteristic part of the early modern behaviour in relation to the crown. Do we see
1: any anxiety around giving represented here?
2: We see it all the time, and going back to some of the slightly earlier material, for example, one of the medieval manuscripts that's on display is from the great dream poem Piers Plowman, written in the later 1400s. And there, there's a whole sort of series of episodes with allegorical character who's called Lady Mead. Now, the word mead, mead, in Middle English, means something like reward, but it can mean bribe as well. It hovers around those different meanings. And in a sense, the poem at this moment dramatises what those different meanings are. She's a really outrageous figure, and she spies influence and corrupts the clergy and all this kind of thing. And that is a demonstration in Langland's dream vision of the concerns, the anxieties around a culture which relies on people's giving a backhander or rewarding people for their service and how that's not necessarily a very stable environment so there are all these worries another text which comes from that period that we've got in the exhibition is one of Chaucer's country tales the summoner's tale and at this moment the summoner in the pilgrimage is trying to get his own back on a friar who's told a tale against a wicked summoner so the summoner's tale involves a corrupt friar again who wants people to give him lots of money and promises that he'll give prayers in return. So the idea of spiritual gifts being corrupted is something that's very common right up into the 16th century, of course. The friar goes to the house of a man who's lying in bed sick, who gets wise to him, and he says, oh, I might be able to give you a gift. I've got it underneath me. You've got to put your hand right down to my backside and you can find a gift. And when the friar puts his hand right down, the man farts on his hand. The friar's absolutely outraged at this. Chaucer says that he stare it up as doth a ward lay on. So he's like an angry lion. And he says, I'm going to pay you back for that fart. And he goes to the local law to seek redress. And they basically treat it as a bit of a joke. And they try and work out the mathematical problem of how to divide the fart equally amongst all the friars in the friary. So... It's turned into a joke, but I think those kinds of stories really emphasise the anxiety of the gift. And later on, certainly in the 16th century, we've got evidence of books which seek to give advice Mm -hmm. to people and to warn of the dangers of being too obliged
1: to other people Mm -hmm. as well. Philistine, you also talk in your chapter about Hobbes, and he seems to be concerned with the gift as a burden. Can you explain
3: Yes, I think Hobbes as so often expresses an idea that is commonplace in some ways within the society, but he puts it with great clarity and a certain brutality. And obviously what he feels is that there are a variety of social exchanges that are burdensome to the individual and that they cannot really secure peace within the society, which is his overall perception of what should happen. And one of the things is that gift-giving places an obligation which detaches, I think one would say, the individual from the societies and exchanges only with another individual. And it's the sort of burden that is... Perhaps inescapable, but is not in any sense a major contributor to the success of the Commonweal. But that idea that the gift is burdensome is very common in early modern society and I suspect in medieval society as well. By giving a gift, you bind the individual to some degree to a return whether that's the return in material gift or whether it's a return in patronage or whatever the issue that is necessary. But the giving of the gift is always a dangerous thing for the receiver if it's not handled with care and sensitivity. And it was striking to my mind that ingratitude is seen as prevalent a vice in early modern society. The question of how far, by being bound to a gift you then make a proper return how far you show yourself in fact to be ungrateful for what is given it can take all sorts of forms but this is again obviously influenced by classical thinking about ingratitude but it is one of those key words that relates so closely to a lot of the writing about the gift in the early modern period ingratitude
1: that seems important when thinking about relationship between god or gods and people. If we think about the divine gifts and spiritual gifts that humans can give each other, prayers for example, then when we get to the 16th century we're looking at a period of change. It's now not possible for many people to give gifts of prayers to those who have died <laughs> as it previously was and there's much more an emphasis on being the recipient of grace as opposed to giving anything in return. I wonder how the exhibition explores these themes of the relationship between God and humans when it comes to gifts.
2: I think the short answer in relation to the 16th century is that I'm not sure we've been able, because it's a small room quite, to get in all of that real shift in that sense that you get a theology that develops which sees God as this overwhelmingly giving force, which a human being can't really do much about and there is a real anxiety isn't there about accepting this and what to do about it
1: and demonstrating the ingratitude that felicity just mentioned
2: yeah absolutely and i think that idea about what kind of gratitude might one give then gets diverted into other expectations about ways of living but also perhaps to my mind diverted into denigrating or pushing against the people that one then sees as the enemy For example, against Roman Catholicism, as a sort of outlet for that idea. What can we do? And a lot of that sort of difficulty feeds into the sort of energy of religious conflict in the period. Most of the items that we have early on in the exhibition, which cross over a range of different sort of religious traditions and cultures, humans at least wanting to or trying to make that attempt to give back. But I think also there's a real difficulty there because with some of the, say, late medieval material, those images, let's take one example, a really beautiful, outstanding book, which is called the Abingdon Missal. And we've got to open a page which shows a crucifixion scene. And on the other opposite page, there's a picture of the story of Abraham and Isaac, another story about gift giving or about sacrifice. And in the text of that page, part of the mass setting, The priest is talking about the offerings to God in the form of the Eucharist as being gifts. So on the page showing the crucifixion, the donor or patron of the manuscript, William Ashenden, who was abbot of Abingdon, is pictured kneeling. Yes he's at the edge of the picture but he's very much sort of part of that and as it were his money has gained him a closeness or an access to God. But I think it's exactly that type of give and take which religious reformers in the 16th century would very much take exception to.
1: Let's go and have a look.
2: I'm James Patton Rogers, a war historian, advisor to the UN and NATO, and host of the Warfare podcast from History Hit. Join me twice a week, every week, as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future. We talked to award-winning journalists. ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really
3: got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq we hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering.
2: And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labour. Join us on the Warfare Podcast from History hit twice a week every week wherever you get your podcasts small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because rust-oleum's new custom spray five in one gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks crannies So we're looking at a book that's open but also what looks like a picture in a frame but actually that picture is medium size with a very beautiful golden frame and plush surround to it It actually was a page that belonged to the manuscript that's above it. The manuscript's a book of hours. It was made in the late 1400s and illustrated by this absolute master. We don't quite know for sure the name of the artist but he's known by art historians as a Maximilian master because of another manuscript that he did which I think is now in Vienna and the picture below was probably cut from the manuscript and sold off into the sort of art trade in the early 1800s so a few years later the book minus various pages that have been cut was bought by a man called Francis Dowse who was a great collector and when he died in the 1830s his enormous collection came to the Bodleian. So the Bodleians had the book for a couple of hundred years, but only just recently, a few months ago, there was a possibility of acquiring a couple of the pages that had been cut and turned into pictures like this. So thanks to help from various funders like the Art Fund and the Friends of the Bodleian, they've managed to buy it. As a curator, I had various things lined up and I had my plans. And then suddenly I had an email saying, ah, oh, we think we might have something really exciting, which is like a gift to the Bodleian because of the funding for it. And also this particular page shows one of the great scenes of giving, if you like, in the Christian tradition, which is the adoration of the Magi, where the three kings come to bring gifts for the baby Jesus. So in this particular picture, which is painted with enormous sort of delicacy and skill and the colours are still really beautiful and vibrant, we see one of the kings there, an old man leaning really close as if he's a bit short-sighted I think, touching the baby Jesus's foot and really delicately examining it and it draws our eyes in I think to look at that ourselves. The lines of sight are heading down towards that moment of contact between the human and the divine and that gift-giving relationship which I think that's what it's all about really isn't it. Something that's interesting about the picture that's part of the developing tradition of the adoration scene is that the three kings are depicted as an old man, a middle-aged man and a young man and here they're very definitely also depicted as someone from Europe, someone from Asia and someone from Africa. The figure there who's the young man is this really handsome black African king dressed in a white robe with blue and yellow hat that he's doffing in honour of the child. Now actually there's another book from which that scene is quite closely copied but this artist has taken it as his own, made it a little bit more naturalistic with the background scene of a kind of wood and buildings but really drawn us into that intimate moment of give and take between humans and God and the Christ as a kind of God as well.
1: It really speaks to the culture around giving, the Christian culture that is underpinning many of the ideas around the ethics of giving and cultural giving that we're going to see here. But I'm also struck by its beauty as an object. The Virgin Mary's face almost looks like what's Venus, and then we've got this incredible book of ours with such fine miniature painting of butterflies and birds and gold leaves. And it is both much more realistic than many books of ours in the mm. decoration. Quite often they're very stylized, but these look like pretty good renderings of birds and flowers yes. and butterflies, don't they? Yeah,
2: that's absolutely right. This artist, he's really interested in the trick that makes it look as if, say, there is a butterfly that has just alighted on that beautiful flower in the lower margin there. And on the left-hand page, where we've opened the book itself, the kind of parent book, as it were, is a scene showing Pentecost. I suppose you could describe that as the gift of the Holy Spirit coming down onto the disciples. You can see the sort of dove figure up there with very delicate gold, almost like rain or rays coming down towards the figures. So I quite like that contrast in the sense that this is Mary again but much later on in the gospel narrative around it the artist has painted medallions we could call them or tokens I think would be a good word often pilgrimage tokens something you might get as a memento if you went to a shrine so they again are painted to look quite realistic And the Bodleian does have books of ours and other religious books where people literally have sewn into their book actual gold coins or mementos like this. Something incredible and a bit cheeky, I think, about how this artist has done it is, if you look in the bottom left-hand corner, we see an image which is known as the Veronica, which shows a picture of Christ's face on a cloth that Saint Veronica was said to have got by mopping Christ's brow. And it looks like it's attached by a pin to the page. Now, what you can't do in an exhibition is show different pages of an open book. But if you were to turn that page over, the artist has drawn what it would look like if the pin went through the page and back out again. It's absolutely incredible. I was really tempted just to show that otherwise fairly blank page just because it's an amazing scene. And it's the artist, I think, just saying, yeah, it's like a mic drop by the artist saying, yeah, I could do anything. I love that.
1: And I was exactly going to say the only trouble with an exhibition Mm -hmm. is that you can't turn the pages of the book. But we are looking at fairly glorious pages. One of the other pieces that feels like it's set the scene of this exhibition is Ashmole 45.
2: Yeah, would you like to see it now? Yes,
1: please. Now this is from the 1520s. Tell me what we're looking at here.
2: Yes, so this is a slightly smaller book. It's a bit bigger than a normal paperback book nowadays, but it's a little bit more scruffy. It does, though, have, I think, a really delicate and nice drawing on this title page. So something about manuscript books in this period is that there's a kind of give and take between the developing design of printed books and how manuscripts were, of course, still being made. So the idea of having a title page itself is something that's more developed in, say, printed books. But here we've got a manuscript book copying back, as it were. At the top there, it says, in quite elaborate, so-called champed in writing, the story of the Earl of Toulouse. Now, this is a medieval romance kind of adventure story, a poem, about the eponymous Earl of Toulouse, who falls in love with his enemy, the emperor's wife. And all sorts of escapades go on. Eventually, he comes back in disguise to rescue her from a false accusation of adultery. And he's reconciled with the emperor because of this. And the emperor conveniently dies quite soon afterwards so that he can marry the girl. And the poem says, I think that they have something like 15 children afterwards just to settle everything down. But this copy underneath the title has this picture of a young man and a young woman. The man's giving the woman a book. He's holding it out to her in his right hand and she's about to take it. Actually, the book in the picture is a little bit posher than the one that we're actually looking at. And there's a kind of scroll that seems to emerge from the book that he's giving. So in this period, to represent speech, you'd often have a scroll rather than a speech bubble. And the scroll says, prenez en grey, which means something like take this with pleasure or receive this gracefully. Now, underneath the two of them, there are two monograms so words that kind of woven in to one another with the letters and they spell out made Maria but it's quite likely that Maria might well have been the name of the woman who was given this book and I like to think of if it is Maria opening this book and kind of seeing herself pictured there's a little bit of pressure there as well because it shows her about to actually receive this possibly love gift or possibly gift gift for an occasion, like an engagement even, from the young man. She is, as it were, already written into the story that's about to take place.
1: What I like about it is it's one of the reasons for gifts being given. You've got a book being given, talking about books as gifts in here. And I love the detail in which the man and woman are portrayed. He's got a very early 16th century Bob with fringe and long gown and she's wearing a gable hood and quite early 16th century clothing. And it immediately takes us back into the human world. It Mm. reminds us that these beautiful objects that we're going to look at were given between people. And I don't know, it roots it, doesn't it, somehow?
2: I think that's absolutely right. And you'll notice as well that sort of excitement when you're working, say, in an archive and being able to hold and handle a book like this or documents which really seem to get you closer to those real lives of people who obviously nobody in the Mm. 1520s, let's say, thought they were living in the past, as it were. This is (laughs) their actual lives going on. Later on, this book belonged to a man, I think his name was William Fitzwilliam, and he's written all sorts of other things in the book, including, for example, at the end of the Earl of Toulouse, a recipe to make a good pudding. So a book like this became used in all sorts of different ways.
1: How interesting. And I suppose it also speaks to us about gifts in terms of power relations, what Mm -hmm. it means in terms of being a donor and a recipient, and also here, of course, about gender.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And obviously, one of the things that, for example, anthropologists have thought about and discussed over the last pretty much exactly 100 years, since some of the kind of really influential publications about gifts first came out, is exactly those sorts of dynamics of power, of gender, of hierarchy and relationships thinking about power mm-hmm. and those sorts of relationships it may be that would be a good segue into some of the royal yes, gifts sure. and things involving Elizabeth
3: oh, Right. so where would you like Princess, princess Elizabeth Princess Elizabeth perhaps we have a lovely example of her new year gifting to, in this case, Catherine Parr. And what we see there is a beautiful piece of embroidery that is everybody seems to be confident by Elizabeth when she was 10 or 11 years old. It's so impressive for somebody of that age. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yes.
1: Completely intertwined and complex.
3: And what it was, a translation from the French of Margaret de Navarre of the Mirror of Sinful Lives, And so it was a double exercise, and this was very characteristic of the things that were given as gifts, particularly by children, women, if they're embroidered. And what happened is that they, 8, 9, 10, 11, they were expected to be able to produce something to mother, father, amongst the New Year gifts. And this is the first example. There are several that we know that Elizabeth did, but this is... The finest of them.
1: It's so striking in so many ways, both the beauty of its presentation, but also the choice of topic, the content, yes, yes. is such an interesting choice by Elizabeth. What do you think it says?
3: I think she expected to produce something that was devotional. There obviously is a strong tradition that this sort of gift would be a devotional, prayers, meditation, things of that kind. So in that sense, the choice is not surprising. But it is to some degree surely identified with the reformist impulses at the French court at the time, and that this is something that instead of perhaps picking up something from the imitation of Christ, for example, the medieval text, you turned to something that was at least in part a connection with the new world of reform change. We can't prove that, of course, but that would seem to be a sensible way of thinking about this sort of gift. And indeed, we know that one of Elizabeth's gifts, the year after this, has some Calvin material in it. So that is an even more distinctive example of something where the reforming concerns are being brought to bear on what are essentially still fairly traditional devotional private meditations presented as gift.
1: And I'm struck by the fact that so far we've looked at gifts given to God, (laughs) to Jesus. We've looked at romantic gifts. And here, on many layers, it's the gift from a stepdaughter to a stepmother. But it's also a text that speaks about... God's gift of grace, this is very much, the Miroir is always all about that freely given gift, it's very Lutheran, it's very <laughs> recognized yes, in its content.
3: Indeed. It is indeed, in a way we're looking as so often at a multi-layered form of the gift, because these are obviously expensive and significant things done by, in this case, a member of the royal household herself, a key princess. And in so doing, she is obviously focusing on the content and looking, we must say, towards a sort of newer devotional world, as well as following the traditions of the court, which are involving elaboration of presentation, a gesture, which is of this highly formal and elegant and distinctive kind. Right next to it, we have another amazing
1: piece of work. So, we're looking at a binding of red velvet with gilt needlework all over it. This is a very big book. This is the size of a sort of modern box file, to be very
3: unromantic about it. It is indeed. And of course, one should remark that amongst the gilding are a magnificent number of Tudor roses. So, this is clearly labelled and marked in all ways for royal consumption. It's a Bible, it's a translation. It's given to Elizabeth in 1584 as part of the gift exchange at New Year that year. And it is by the printer who has the monopoly right, copyright as it were, to print English Bibles. And interestingly, both the Geneva version of the English Bible and the much earlier version, which is out of Tyndale's translation, the Great Bible And this is an elaborate piece of presentation which was intended, above all one must say, to catch the eye of Elizabeth when she must have had hundreds of gifts given to her. This would be difficult, I think, to ignore, even in (laughs) that sort of context. Yes, absolutely.
1: And next to it we have a much more humble-looking object that is also a New Year's gift to Elizabeth. As you say, there must have been so many of them, but
3: this is particularly striking because the... Creator is a woman. She is indeed. She's known as Esther Inglis, and she is a mixture of French and connections with Scotland. She was a professional choreographer, one say, in a slightly perhaps anachronistic context. And she translated, this is a translation of the Psalms from French but it's also elegant, superbly elegant piece of calligraphic writing. So at each few pages, and of course as we look at it in the display cabinet here, we can only see one page, but each set of pages are done in a different kind of hand. secretary hand, which is one of the well-known hands of the period, is perhaps the dominant one, but she was able to turn her skills to endless examples of elegant, beautifully controlled writing. And it is tiny writing when you look at it in a display cabinet like this. My eyes find it quite difficult to pick out the words and it must have been an extraordinary exercise because this is one of a significant number of manuscripts that Esther produced, a number of which survive. It should be said that both those last items that we've been looking at obviously have an element of the search for patronage about them. The Bible is produced by someone who is already patronised by the crown. Esther is looking for exactly that same sort of patronage, perhaps on a more modest scale. Unfortunately, she didn't get very much of it at all. I'm very sad to hear that, because this is a piece of work that is just superlative. Extraordinary.
1: It's hard to believe that this has been written by a human hand as opposed to printed, because it's so precise and so detailed. It shows this same degree of artistry as we saw in the miniature painting in the book of Hours.
3: it's amazing yes it is indeed and as i say were we able to take it out of the cabinet and turn the pages one will see in a way an even more extraordinary ability to adapt to what is thought to be the set of hands that were most likely to bring patronage to her and she was a remarkable figure. Although it's interesting that this example that we have here is fairly early in her career, when later on she produced work that was just as elegant, but less ambitious in its forms of presentation. The search for patronage had obviously not gone particularly well.
1: Thank you so much, both of you, for showing me around this exhibition and introducing me to some of its themes. And how long is this exhibition running, Nicholas?
2: It's on right now. It's open until the 29th of October here in the Western Library, which is the Bodleian Special Collections Library, right here in the middle of Oxford. So it's free, it's open every day, and, yeah, you're really welcome. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you for having me. And I do recommend, if you can at all get to Oxford, to come and see these treasures, because it will be a gift to yourself.
2: Oh, that's really kind. And, of course, many of the items in the exhibition are also illustrated in our book that goes along with it.
3: Thank you. And
1: thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects, so drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors.
0: So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at Byheart.com.
1: History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.